Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right, welcome back to the podcast, guys. Today, I'm very excited. We have Christine Williamson on. So I wanted to go back to promoting females in construction, especially females in building science. So I'm very excited to have her on today. So Christine, tell us a little bit about what you're up to and how you got into building science. Oh, okay. Well, I, um, I'm a building scientist. I work primarily in forensics and teaching. So I, well, and, and new consulting too. So on the forensic side, I'll investigate building failures. Um, and that's really after architecture school, that's really where I started. Throughout school, I worked on the on the new construction side, working for a really great designer through school. And then after school, I worked in consulting. And that was super helpful because seeing how what goes wrong with buildings has a big influence on, uh, on how you advise people to avoid those types of problems in new construction. And um, so I spend a lot of time doing that too, consulting. And then, and then the third thing I do is teach. So I like to... Um, as it turns out, I, I kind of started teaching by accident. Um, anyway, I started teaching because I, because I had this experience in forensics and I was spending so much time on construction sites. Um, a lot of my classmates from architecture school would ask me questions about stuff that they were sort of experiencing in their practices but weren't quite satisfied with. So they'd ask a principal a question or they'd ask a contractor a question and they'd get an answer and they'd feel kind of uncomfortable asking the follow-up question like the, are you really sure about that because what about this or you know they just weren't quite confident enough to to press the issue with um with someone that they either had uh like a dependent relationship with they depend on them for their paycheck or a slightly adversarial relationship with as is the case sometimes with contractors so i would get um i'd get those questions from my from my former classmates and um i started kind of addressing those things on Instagram. I'd take photos uh, that I would, I'd take for, you know, actual job site photos and I'd mark them up. I'd put them on Instagram and do a little in the caption room, you know, space. I'd describe the, the principle at play, uh, the architectural considerations that you would need to know and construction stuff that apply to that, to that photo. And, um, and it was really fun. And then people uh, apart from my actual classmates started getting getting interested in the same thing and sort of a little community was uh was born on instagram that's gotten a lot bigger and it's um it's made me at, at the beginning i i kind of rationalized it as well um our profession is based on apprenticeship and this is a way for me to teach other people because i wasn't really in the a position to be able to do that through my employment i didn't have like a junior staff to teach. Um, so this allowed me to go through that and it made me a much better teacher and a much better communicator because we're always kind of communicating these things um, to whether it's to clients or to contractors or to owners, you know, who, whoever it is that needs to hear this stuff. So practicing describing these things to my friends online was, um, was good for me professionally too. And it was, it was good for me to have this sort of space, safe space to get 
to respond to comments and questions where, I mean, I'd much rather get a question on Instagram that I can answer on my kitchen, you know, at my kitchen table in my pajamas on a Saturday morning than in front of 200 people teaching a class or in, you know, in a contractor meeting or something like that. Now I've, I've had my share of that too. So I'm pretty used to that, but, um, it's, this was a, this was a really nice low stakes environment to hash through a lot of stuff and get a lot better at talking about what we do, um, in the, in the process. So that's been an unexpected part of my, part of my job now is, is being a teacher and I love it. I, I just adore teaching, especially teaching other professionals. Like this is, it's just, it's great. And architects especially don't have too many technical advocates, like people who can really be their support. Architects get pushed around so much and I want to help them not get pushed around. And I love doing that. I love, I'm, I'm your muscle. Like, <laughs> I'll help you out. I don't want you to get pushed around, taken advantage of, whatever. So that's the most fun part of my job. Yeah. What you're doing is so valuable and so important because especially young architects getting into the field. I know I'm doing some building science consulting with another architect um, who basically said, like, I'm missing the details. I'm missing the skills. You know, what, what don't I know? And as we move towards higher performance, as the codes start getting better and we have higher performance structures, building science gets so much more important. You know, it's not as simple as the 1800s when they put everything up. It all dried out because it was all wide open. And apparently people really liked to paint back then. Either that or they didn't, they didn't, they all lived with wearing an extra sweater um, instead of having the heat be up, you know, so because we often describe when you're doing renovation work that a lot of the paint peeling off the exterior siding is the moisture being pushed out from the interior walls because there's, you know, no vapor barrier, there's movement and all kinds of stuff. And so as we move towards higher performance wall systems, managing that risk is going to become even more important. So what you're offering for other architects is, is huge or even other contractors. Travis mentioned on the podcast, uh, they're always planning for failure. You know, they're always kind of planning for when this happens or that happens, or if water gets in here, or what do we do about the water? But in a lot of our discussions, people don't talk about water at all. Or a couple of weeks ago on BS and beer, we talked about how or maybe it was with Allison Bales uh, on the podcast. We had talked about how HVAC, most people are missing the V. Like they don't do a lot with ventilation or understand a lot of the ventilation. And as we get to higher performing houses, ventilation is going to become a major issue. So how do you help somebody get over the hurdle of managing risk when the default, or at least the default experience that we find is to just keep doing it the same way we've been doing it for 25 years? Eh, I mean, a lot of people, in fact, I think actually it's a lot easier for, to talk to people about managing risk to real professionals. Uh, I, I don't mean, um, don't owners are often not very inclined to talk about risk, but people managing their own businesses tend to really care a lot about risk. So people investing money and stuff are a lot more receptive, I think, to the risk conversation than, for example, the energy conversation, um, even though they sort of pretend otherwise, right? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, of course I want things to be energy efficient. Uh, but they 
often express little interest in learning about thermodynamics or learning about what's required to actually pursue that. But risk ends up being a little bit of a, I find a, actually quite a bit easier of a conversation to pursue. Now, easier to pursue it and there's sort of more fertile ground and, and more opportunity there. But, um, but talking about risk is really uncomfortable for a lot of people as well. They don't like the idea of of trade-offs and um and it's very hard to um it, to kind of disabuse people even professionals of the notion that what they were doing before wasn't all that great to begin with but they didn't know it and they could get away with it um like like I, I explained to people that I'm teaching that we are in the water management business we are not in we are not waterproofers virtually no part of our building is is tr totally impervious to water so th and that's why uh the permeance of our materials matters and how like whether or not what something that gets wet can dry out matters um dealing with hydrostatic pressures and providing drainage and all the and and back venting our claddings and and uh you know using whatever plywood or gypsum instead of OSB in certain cases because we've got tons of insulation in a double stud wall and we're not going to have we have reduced drawing capacity and so now suddenly these things matter again but it's hard to admit that those things matter if you previously thought that you were that buildings all buildings are waterproof I don't know what you're talking about no water gets past brick it's solid right solid as a brick wall um it's it's very very hard for people to to kind of accept this idea of, of trade-offs. And in their mind, they would like, our, and a lot of owners are like this too, Cli our clients are like this, they would sort of like architecture or architects to be kind of, I don't know, in the business of sourcing finished materials for us and, and little else, not really designing the actual enclosures and paying attention, like all that other stuff is just a given, right? And it should just be fixed. But they don't, they don't understand that just like, like St uh, structure is a load, but so is water. So, so is water, and we should treat it like a load. We don't design our buildings to never, ever, ever fall down. We don't design bridges that way. What we do is we design them to respond to the most common loads that we anticipate they'll be exposed to in their in-service, in their service life, and, um, and that when they fail, we want them to fail in a way that minimizes loss of life. Um, well, our enclosures are exactly the same way with respect to water and air and thermal performance. We don't design buildings that never, ever, ever leak. We design them to um, resist the most common water loads, rain loads, you know, groundwater, all the, the most wind storms. All, all the, we, we want them to resist the most common forces. And that when there's a, a defect or a failure, we want to minimize its effect through the through the life of the building. But it, it's uh, that's talking about risk is really hard. People don't um, people don't like to think about that. They like doing the fun stuff, or or they th I think that stuff is fun, but well, they they don't think that that's fun sometimes. <laughs> I think that stuff is fun too. Like understanding all the details, talking to you, talking to Mike Mains, talking to Ben Bogey. Like, hey, this is what I'm gonna try. We do a lot of double stud walls up here, and I know that you've mentioned to me in in the past, like double stud wall that that's pretty risky scenario. So you have to talk about managing the risk and. One of the things that happens a lot in residential construction, not as much um, in commercial construction because, uh, well, at least I assume not as much in commercial construction. I haven't done a lot of commercial construction in, in the last couple of years, but 
the architect will turn over the plans and then the builder will take it and run with it. And they don't always call and talk to you about it and they may change a material. And I think that homeowners and clients think that you're providing them with the best possible thing. And then whatever's left over, they get to play with to pick out those granite countertops and do whatever. But we seem to value engineer out things in the structure that have a major impact on both energy performance and on risk is, you know, I've had people in the past be like, well, we're not going to dense pack cellulose because our guy doesn't do dense packing and, you know, your guy's twice as much money and we're just going to put this other insulation in. And I'm like, it's not as simple as just swapping this one product for another product because they don't work the same way. Or it, it might not be. Like sometimes it is sometimes. The, and I think that's that one of the reasons that I have so much fun teaching so many people on on Instagram is uh, that I find that uh, young designers in the profession, whether they're architects or or um, not not quite licensed yet, they they like to they want to have enough information to be able to confidently answer those questions. So when they get a substitution request, they want to know okay, performance-wise, like in the context of the rest of my design, is what's being proposed here a lateral change? Is it inferior? Is it, or is it superior? Maybe like contractor might have a better idea than I thought of. Um, and they're not, uh, right now, I find that a lot, I mean, this is obviously, there's a, there's a scale to this and even very, very experienced architects can get questions they don't know the answer to. Um, and, 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 inexperienced architects know the answers to some questions too. So it's not, it's not a black or white thing either, but, um, but that's something that a lot of, a lot of practitioners really struggle with. They get these questions and they're not really sure. They're not really sure how to, how to interpret the, how to, how to evaluate the substitution request. And, um, and I think architects a lot of times want to be amenable to, contractors who have different preferences and they want to recognize, well, hey, this person is really experienced and is really good at what he or she does. And I want to, I want to make room in our relationship for someone else to bring expertise to the table. But if I, I'm in the, if I don't, if it's something I don't understand enough to say yes to, I'm going to have to say no. And I don't like being in that position. I want to be in the position to say yes more. Um, but you can only say, yeah, you've got to, you, the less you know, the more conservative you need to be. The more you know uh, about, and, and that's actually been a joy for myself. And I think probably lots of people as they mature in whatever their chosen corner of this profession is, is that the more experienced you are, the more you can kind of, more open you can be to, to different ways. Cause you're a lot more, you've got a whole bank of, of comparisons to make and, and you, you can be a lot more, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I, you mentioned double stud walls. I don't think anybody starting out in this profession should be just, Hey, let's start there. That's like, uh, just not a good idea. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going to do something that's, that's different and extraordinary, uh, you're going to want a really big, you're going to want a bank of experience uh, to draw on to, to be able to make some of those, um, some of those decisions. And, um, and you can do really cool things when you, when you have that, but, um, but you need to have it. So anyway, I hope really actually what I end up doing with Instagram and this teaching stuff is how can we use technology to increase people's 
experience without them actually having the experience, without them having to go through it themselves, right? And we can do that. Like, to, you, to a certain extent, there's no substitute, right? You have to actually be working to gain a, a certain kind of experience. But in another respect, you absolutely can. Um, when I walk a, when I'm visiting a different city and I have a friend who's in that city and we walk a job site, I learn something. It's not my project. I don't learn as much as, as she does. Um, but I learn something by seeing, huh, like the thousand little things. You're like, oh, well, that's how they do their trusses in California here. Uh, that's an interesting way of framing roofs or whatever it is, like these little things that, that you absorb. And you can get that photographically on, on Instagram or through a Facebook group or it's not, you know, it's not a substitute, but it's a huge help. Like, especially understanding how, how they do things in different climates. So even if you never practice in that climate, understanding sort of the boundary conditions makes you better, makes you understand what you do and in, in maybe, the, maybe it helps you understand something you've been doing for the last 20 years a little better by seeing how different That's it is. That's so in, true. And even know, just Alaska having the conversation that the United States has eight different climate zones and you have to think about the fact that even within all of those climate zones, you then have <laughs> yes. hot and dry and you know, cold and wet and all kinds of things related to it that you, you have to think about it a little bit different. And sort of this joke, because the, the Northeast is uh, maybe known a little bit more for some of their building science technology. And, but we kind of laugh. And part of what I love about having Travis as part of BS and beer is he's like, that wouldn't work here. Or why would we ever do that here? Or, you know, you guys, the, the wall system challenge, you know, where you've got a R70 yeah. wall system, like in Kansas city, you'd probably never build an R70 wall. There would be no reason to do it. Oh yeah. And you get weird irrational or like I built an R145 roof in California, uh, Southern California. And it was crazy. It, this was not an energy efficient building. This was like a normal multifamily apartment building. And we didn't do it for thermal reasons. We did it because we needed to insulate, we wanted to insulate the truss space under the, under the roof uh, to avoid sprink adding sprinklers to that, to that space. So it was cheaper to just stuff the entire cavity and add some rigid insulation on top of the roof deck than it was to provide sprinklers in that space. So there's like a thousand trade-offs that you're like, what, why would you do that in Los Angeles? Um, but when you start to put all the pieces together, oh, well, this is a requirement. So, you know, this is a constraint. I also agree exactly with what you said. Every time I go to a project, I learn something different. And it's part of the reason why I love working as an integrated team, you know, bring the builder on during the design process, because um, yeah. if you're doing bid work and you put it out to bid to six different contractors, they all have different skill levels. They all have different products that they can do. They all have had things that they've done and tried that either worked well or didn't work well. So they're going to build it differently or they're going to build it your way and it's going to be harder or more expensive. And so if you get the, the whole team on board, everything from the landscape architect and the orientation of the house and working with, you know, not 
not bringing in a ton of extra fill to a job site to, you know, the builder saying, Hey, that's a great detail, but we've done this and it goes really fast for us on site because we've done it. And if it's an apples to apples comparison where you can kind of kick it back and look at it and say, okay, yeah, that, that would work. Yeah. Fair enough. That's great. And then everybody's happy because everybody has learned something. And the hardest part as an architect is if you don't spend any time on your job sites, you don't know when something didn't go well either. And so you may keep yeah. repeating a bad detail for somebody because you didn't hear that it didn't go well. So you just assumed that it went fine, you know? And so yeah, that's one of the things that I love. And I don't know if this is an architecture thing or, or a female thing, but I think a lot of architects or maybe a lot of women are afraid to ask the questions, you know, on the job site, because you don't want to look like you don't know something. And, and maybe that's just across the board. You know, people don't oh, yeah. want to look like they don't know, but if you have the right team, they'll explain everything to you. And that's what I like about the building science community that we're starting to pull together is that people who are really, really super interested in building science seem really happy to share, share their knowledge, share their experience, share oh, what yeah. they've done, which isn't as common in traditional construction, at least hasn't been in my experience. So I have so many things to say about this, but uh, I was at a, I was at a conference sort of semi recently and um, somebody that I used to know peripherally gave a presentation and I was listening to this presentation and I, cause I give presentations. So it's kind of nice to be in the audience. Cause I, it's like, it's, nice to have a little bit of a point of contrast for how I teach something versus how someone else might teach something. Anyway, this was a subject that I knew a little bit about, um, but not enough to be a teacher myself. Anyway, I was listening to this and I realized uh, now in my more experienced state versus, you know, when I had first met this person, that the person speaking did not really understand the subject matter that much. Um, now I didn't understand it that much either. So this isn't like a judgment thing. Like, you know, he was totally stupid, but his teaching technique was, I think, based on intimidation. It was, I'm going to prove to you that I'm smart and I'm going to present just enough of this that you're not going to, that you're just going to trust that I'm smart and not, and not ask me any questions. And now obviously he didn't say it like that. Right. But, um, but the presentation style was, it was um, resting on credentials and authority, not on um, buy-in from first principles and consensus. Um, and I teach in a completely different way. And this actually made me annoyed when I was, when I was in the audience here, because when I teach or, or in, in my day-to-day -day practice, what I prefer to do, occasionally I will have to rest on authority, right? I'm like, well, you asked my opinion and this is my opinion. And, um, I highly recommend that we do it this way. And I don't think we should recommend doing it any other way for the following reasons. It's your decision, take it or leave it. Right. <laughs> like I'm not, you know, <laughs> if you don't do this, I'm not liable, whatever. Um, or I say, it's not your call, it's my call, and this is what I say, whatever. I occasionally, but that's my last resort, right? Uh, before it gets to that point, I, I explain my justification. I say, well, we're trying to achieve this, this, and this, and this is the best way, I believe this is the best way of achieving that, those objectives, um, given the resources that we, that we have, and I explain my logic. So, so that even somebody that isn't as familiar with this subject area, I show my work basically, 
somebody that isn't as familiar with the, the technical part should be able to, if they cared, should be able to follow along and make a pretty informed decision themselves. And um, that's a lot harder. Like to understand something well enough to break it down for someone else and, and you're giving, and really what you're doing is you're giving them the tools to disagree with you too. You're giving them the tools to, to you know, make a counter case. That's a lot, that's a harder position to defend intellectually and just practically speaking than the jerk who gave the presentation basically saying, I'm an engineer, I'm really experienced and um, industry term, industry term, industry term, acronym, 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 ha, I win. Like that was the summary of the presentation. That's, that's not, uh, anyway, but that's easier. For him, I guess that's easier. And um, I, I hate, I think people get can get away with this in our industry because most of us are so intimidated and, and embarrassed that we, we hear that and we're like, wow, well, my question is really stupid now. And they don't ask the question. So I'm like, anyway, I have mixed feelings about that where I'm kind of glad that, that I'm different, but I'm annoyed because, man, I could have gotten a lot farther in my career, a lot faster if I just pretended, if I just faked it. But anyway, um, we're now airing my like emotional struggles uh, on, on this podcast. But, um, but no, I really, I, I abhor intellectual snobbiness, which is sort of funny because I feel like I'm a, a nerd and a geek and I love nerds and geeks. Um, so I appreciate that line of thinking. So I guess in a certain sense, I don't know, maybe I'm an, an, an elitist like that. But I also abhor just credentialism and a lack of showing your work and, and, and taking other people through your reasoning and making people too scared to challenge your conclusion or ask a question or winning by humiliation or threat of humiliation isn't winning to me. And I, I hate that that runs through our profession a little bit. The uh, might makes right um, I, I don't, um, I don't like that. I don't like it when people are afraid to ask questions. I think it makes us unwelcoming to, to young people in our profession. It does, it does them a huge disservice and, um, and I hate it. <laughs> I like people to feel good about themselves and not feel stupid because they don't know the answer to a question. This profession is so big. There's so many pieces. And just because you don't know like one little part of it doesn't make you stupid overall. It makes you a smart person who doesn't know that one thing. Calm down. It's okay. <laughs> Maybe teaching makes you feel that way. I feel that way also. I teach classes. I've been doing some building science classes with another architect. You, you've always heard that adage, that there's no stupid question. The only stupid question is the question you didn't ask. And I don't know why that that isn't prevalent in our industry. Why do we expect that we should know more than we do before we do? And at the same time, in my classes, I'll say, once I know it, I don't remember not knowing it. So if I say something and you have no idea what I'm talking about, you have to ask because I don't remember you don't know yet. So yeah. it's this weird place when you're teaching to, you know, you're going along and you're talking about something, you're talking about vapor migration or you're talking about heat loss calculations or you're talking about some way they need to evaluate this this structure, wall system, whatever. And their, their eyes just glaze over and you look up and you're like, okay, wait, reel it back in. Wait a second. You guys yeah. clearly, you, you didn't catch that. Those are people in a school setting. So, you know, I teach a class at a community yeah. college. They're there and they're, they're meant to ask questions and they sort of know they're meant to yeah, ask questions. Yeah, that's their job. Yeah. But when you get out into the field, architecture school doesn't teach you how to actually build anything, which I, 
think is why um, there's a little bit of contention between contractors and, and architects. Is architecture school really teaches you how to think outside the box. It gives you this whole design scenario. Because I think it's harder if you learn how to do CAD before you go to architecture school, it's harder to open your mind and come up with a new scenario. It's just kind yeah. of this weird thing. And, um, but then we're expected to go into the field and have three years worth of professional practice and be trained by somebody. But I mean, how many architects do you know that spent like the first year doing bathroom details? You know what? You might be really good at laying out bathrooms, but you learned nothing else about how the structure actually went together or how they built that or, and why is it not okay to, to, to sit down and understand it. And as buildings get more complicated, it's going to get even more important that we ask the questions to the things that we don't know. I wonder if that'll help us though, because things are getting so much more specialized. So I, I wonder if that's something that really works in, in our favor as an industry where, where, because things are specialized, there'll be this acknowledgement that like, you can ask questions here um, because of course you're, of course, you know, of course, of course you, you will have know. questions. Of course you won't know this, um, you know, this sort of degree of, um, of specialty. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with, um, with that assessment. I think one of the, one of the most helpful things about my teaching on, on Instagram to such a, a diverse group of people and practitioners geographically, age-wise, I mean, not that much age-wise, they're kind of, I don't know, in the like late 20s to early 40s range, but certainly geographically and level of experience in the in the field. And I've got, most of them are architects, but some are also builders, but it's been really helpful based on the questions that I get uh, to sort of take the temperature of the industry in terms of, well, what's, what do people commonly know and what do they, what do they not really know? I remember when I was first teaching live, like I'd occasionally get asked to, on behalf of a manufacturer, usually like, will you present on such and such at a conference and we will pay you. And I would, I would do that, but I never really knew standing up in front of those people, like, uh, am I insulting them? Do they all already know this? Is this, or is this like, am I, or am I speaking like way over their heads? Like, and that's to not even be able to place yourself on that continuum. Am I insulting you? Cause this is so easy. Or am I overwhelming you? Cause it's so hard. Well, there's a lot of, that's a big Delta. Um, and Instagram's really helped me, um, uh, helped me sort of figure out what, what people go into it generally, generally knowing. Um, my first, I think I'd been doing it for like six months, Instagram anyway, or like really trying to, to teach more people than just my friends. And um, I was talking to a classmate from architecture school and I was asking her, hey, so like, how am I doing on this Instagram thing? Like, what do you, what do you think? And she said, well, to be honest, I really only understand about 50% of what you say. And I'd really been trying at like, that was, I was trying, that wasn't just at the beginning, I was like, eh, whatever, but this was, I was putting some effort into it. I, and for me to hear that from someone who I knew personally to be uh, a very devoted professional, she was not just out of school and she's one of the smartest people I know. So for her to be, for someone with about a decade of experience in architecture, uh, a graduate degree and a license. If if she's only if she's honest enough to tell me that she's only understanding about half of what I'm saying, then I need to teach differently. And um, 
anyway, so my approach now is to not pres is to presume that a hundred percent of the people don't know anything um, except maybe terminology, but even that, like they'd know generally how the profession of architecture is organized, but that they're smart people, but that's, that's it. That's all they know that they're generally smart and they know how the profession is, is organized, but they don't know anything more than that. And first of all, that helps people that are actually in that position. Um, and it helps people that actually know more because I've, the more I teach this, the more I realize that even for people that are very, experienced hearing the fundamentals articulated from step one isn't insulting it's not it's not insult like do you think Einstein got insulted when somebody else went through e equals mc squared and went through the whole calculation I don't think so um, I just came up with that whatever maybe not a great example but it's not um, starting at starting from first principles isn't insulting to me I know a lot about this but starting from there it never insults me. Why would it insult somebody else? Start from the beginning. Remembering the basics and going over it again can never hurt, right? I mean, yeah. And hearing it from hearing it articulated by a different person, does that make you better at your job or worse at your job? Or does it waste your time? I don't think so. It makes you better. Well, and sometimes something that you know intrinsically and hearing it in a different way from somebody else is just like, oh yeah. And it might solidify the idea behind what you thought, or it may make you think about it in a totally different way. Like you and I had talked the other day and um, Travis had posted this great diagram on Instagram that talked about how the building insulation was less than 1% of the total value, you know, of the home. And that's something oh, that's yeah. going to go, it's going to go into the structure and it's going to stay with the structure for the, in theory, maybe the lifespan of yeah, the structure. It's right? not easy to swap that out. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not easy to <laughs> change that. That's not changing that. the paint color. Yeah. That's... It's all, it's super hard to change that. Right. And so, so that was one of those value things where you're like, this is going to both save you money. It's going to improve the durability of your building. And by the way, it's less than 1%. And in comparison to that, it's like your kitchen, you're going to change every 10 years. You know, in theory, most people change the kitchen every 10 years. Um, but you and I had talked about that from an economic standpoint is if you're not planning to stay there for more than five to 10 years, then those extra dollars in your pocket may actually make more sense in the kitchen than they do in the insulation, which is as building scientists, not the direction we want to push people in. But when you start talking about economics, there's a different economic value proposition to a building. Like, does it make sense depending on the length of time you personally plan to own whatever this building is, whether it's a commercial building or a, a, a residence and what you can do with the money you don't put into the building. And that made me step back and go, oh yeah, right. Sometimes yeah. you have to think about that. And maybe we need to, um, talk about different value propositions, I'm still going to push the insulation and say, like, this is going to be hard to change and it's going to have a major impact and it's going to improve the durability. And honestly, shouldn't we be building buildings that last a lot longer and hope that we can change the market, you know, in the real estate industry and the lending industry to start valuing some of those things that you can't see, but have a major impact. I know um, five years ago when we built one of our first uh, solar homes in our uh, little five lot solar subdivision, um, they weren't going to give us 
anything for value for the 20 solar panels that were on the roof because they just didn't know how to value them. How to price that, yeah. And at the time she was living there with two younger kids and the three of them lived there for $11 a month with the solar panels on this because this is this high wow. performance house. It, it literally costs nothing. And part of that was because of the solar panels on the roof. And he, we wanted to go back and just say, how can this not add, add zero value to, to the structure? So two insights to that. I think number one, you are absolutely right in, um, in the difficulty sometimes of communicating the value, particularly to improvements to the enclosure that deal with energy and um, risk reduction and improvements in durability. It's really hard to communicate that sometimes. I think people are increasingly receptive to hearing that. Um, and if you get them going, I think I, I think we really can move the move the industry, especially by because a lot of these things are pretty closely aligned with comfort. Um, and so I think there's these things work together and I think owners are are receptive to thinking in those lines, but we still have to make the case. And um, I think also be open-minded enough to recognize that um, that you get people in very different places in, in their lives, in, in their personal lives and in their financial lives. And so sometimes the decisions that makes that I would make or that I would wish another person to make aren't um, aren't the ones they're gonna make and sometimes that, that and sometimes that's okay like sometimes I think people are totally right they're just different um, and then other times I think they're wrong but they do it anyway I mean this isn't the first time in the in the history of the world that people um, prioritize their short-term interests over their long-term interests. I think that's sort of part of a, the human condition. Um, and, and we see that in lots and lots of areas of life. But um, but yeah, sometimes I think it's actually totally fair to, and we should try not to judge that and try to be as accommodating as possible because people do, I mean, it isn't unreasonable to um, to to think about people's immediate financial needs and um and prioritize some of that i mean what happens you know people have a sick kid um right. or a kid with special needs that needs um so they need to be devoting more of their present days to um to uh some sort of special education program and that um it really does make sense for them to to worry about re-insulating their attic later <laughs> like that's that's not a priority for right now. And, um, and that's okay. Um, we need to be, I think we need to be flexible and understanding with people, but I think we, the better we get at understanding some of the trade-offs ourselves, the better we can communicate that to people and help them make, um, make good decisions that they feel good about too. Cause a lot, a lot of times the joke is that they always pick the, the kitchen finishes over the, over the insulation, but they don't always, I mean, how many clients do you have that, are chemically sensitive or have a kid with asthma and are like, no, um, I care a lot less about my kitchen countertops than I do about having, dealing with these allergies, you know, yeah. like, that's not uncommon. It's, it's not uncommon for me. When I started saying this is sort of what we do. And some of the things that we focus on, those people started to come to us because they weren't 
as concerned about what was going in their kitchen and they were more concerned about the ventilation system that was going to be in there and the high performance uh, aspect of the house and yeah. you know the durability and longevity of the structure and so um you're right it's sort of the joke that we that we all say is kind of like an industry-wide thing yeah. it is you know not necessarily yeah, exactly. the the value proposition we've had plenty of people um i had one client he was really concerned about the flammability of a lot of materials that we use in our building so like we went through this whole thing like okay well what you know how flammable is some of this stuff that we're using and then what's the carcinogenic value of this stuff that's flame retardant like if it's stuff that doesn't burn often has chemicals that aren't so great for you you know so this kind of whole conversation and trade-off about what's in all of these materials and people are starting to ask what's in materials and you know oh i have this chemical sensitivity or i have yeah. kids with allergies and i'd really like a ventilation system that has a filtration system that we can get rid of ragweed in the spring or you know all all summer long we have allergies to you know this or that and with the whole yeah. covid-19 and people staying at home maybe more people will will start thinking about the health. Um, I know I have a YooHoo monitor and, and my last um, email that I sent out, I talked about some of the issues that I'm having in my own house. And there was really high um, VOCs in my office. And I thought that we bought a house that was from the seventies. I thought it was something that we had inherited with the office. There's uh, wood boards on the wall, who knows where they came from vinyl flooring on the floor, you know, it was one of those, I'm going to replace the stuff in the house slowly. So like a, any good scientist, I started ripping things out one thing at a time and watching the monitor and seeing what was happening. And um, it turns out oh, that it's directly funny. related to whether or not the door in my basement is open. So it's, it's actually not something that's <laughs> in my office, but it's something that's being drawn to my office when this door is open because of the way that my house is laid out. That's kind of the pocket of where uh, things would collect when, um, so I've since moved my office to a different location in the house as I was trying to figure out what was going on there. So pressure relationships in houses are really, really interesting in any building. They're really interesting. And I'm not a huge expert at this. Um, the guy who knows so much about this is Koda Weno at um, Building Science Corporation. He's so cool with this stuff. He, he just knows so much about this. He is such a rock star. Also, I loved doing projects with him because he is, um, um, there's something about him. Also, he carries like every tool available, like, and he uses it. He does, he's got this like innovative tool belt that looks like a kind of a pregnancy, like a sympathy pregnancy vest that like a husband would put on to know what it was like to be like a weighted vest that a husband would wear to know what it's like for his wife to be pregnant. He has that, but it has tools in it. It's like, Anyway, it's just very funny. So he shows up on a job site and clients are like, you are a geek and I believe everything you say. Like he just like immediately, I have to really convince people of stuff, not with Coda around. I mean, he just is, I mean, he's also very smart. So that's very convenient. But in addition to actually being smart, he looks smart and he seems smart. So he's, um, he's fun, but he knows a lot about this. But um, if you've got infiltration problems at basements, one of the best ways to deal with that is to air seal at your attic, um, which is crazy and not always intuitive. But if you've got a lot of exfiltration going on, you're absolutely right to say that stuff is, you're drawing stuff in. So reduce how much goes out, you reduce how much is drawn in. 
which is weird and totally not intuitive. It's so crazy too, because when I put the air quality monitor, I closed the door and I put the air quality monitor. So um, my utility room is directly below my office. And I thought, oh, it's just drawing everything from the utility room to the office. But when I put the utility monitor or when I put the air quality monitor in the utility room, that's not where it's coming from. I have no idea. So do you, do you have a blower door? I do. Okay, so you can actually do a lot of this. Ask yes. Coda about this afterwards. Uh, so what you can do is you can use your manometer. Um, you can use a blower door to induce a pressure in certain parts of your house. Use your manometer to see what's going on and then just open and close doors and turn stuff on and off mm -hmm. as like and see zone pressure testing yeah basically and see what you and then chase your chase the smell yeah like see what under like reproduce the odor which this is also very hard i've done uh, a couple odor investigations with coda and actually speaking of women in the industry coda loves doing odor investigations with me because i'm a lady and we have more receptors in our nose um, <laughs> so we smell things first for real so uh, the odor and he the last time i did one with him i was like huh smells like bacon and like 20 minutes later he, the dudes could smell it because <laughs> um, someone was cooking outside bacon i mean it wasn't invented but um no it's uh he does that he does that uh, he does pressure testing and pressure mapping super, super well. But the odor investigations, do it, investigating what you're describing is um, really, really, really hard. Those are the ones where if I take a job like that, I worry that I won't solve it. And, and that's the one, the one good thing um, about me living here is I can take as much time as I want to, to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. You're your own client. Um, it's funny that you say that because I have done pressurization testing and it didn't even occur to me that that's what I should be doing at my own house. It would not occur to me either. I hadn't thought about it in a while. I do have a blower tour and so it's hilarious. And I didn't blower door test this house because when we first moved in, like all good building scientists, <laughs> didn't I was just like, know. I don't want to know. <laughs> I'm just going to live here for a little bit. I don't want to know. Um, so I'm coming up with, um, I'm coming up with um, classes that I'm hoping to teach online uh, building science classes that I'm trying to offer online. So I'm developing this presentation and I'm right now, right, right before we started talking, I was working on the, on the, um, air control component of it. And I was thinking exactly that same thing. I was like, I wonder what my, I haven't blurred or tested my house. I wonder what it is now. hundred year old house. I have no, I have a crawl space and no subfloor. It was, it's just the boards right on top of the floor. Like if I dropped a penny, it would just go all like there, it lands on dirt like all the way through <laughs> not anymore because I so when I first moved in the, into the house what did I do I renovated my kitchen <laughs> and that was five years ago and then just this year I um I conditioned the crawl space so that's beautiful and dry and insulated and now airtight and then uh, the attic is going to be next and um and I probably will never address the um windows and the and the wall because uh, I think that surface area wise dealing with the roof and the, and the attic is going to make such a difference that it probably, it's also a historic home. So it's not worth um, messing with yeah. stuff that's nice. At, to at some point, and, and in my building science class that I was teaching, I was staying in a design class with the, um, with the technical college, the last thing that we did was we, um, they have a building that they could walk through on campus. It's a little house. And then we talked about what you would do, you know, for, for renovations. And so, you know, they've spent all, all semester long 
learning about high performance wall systems and you know so they want to rip the roof off and they want to do this and they want to extend the exterior insulation whenever and someone's like oh we're going to change the windows and i'm like that would be the last thing i would recommend <laughs> they were yeah. like wait what you know what? that's always the yeah i laugh about that um this house was built in the 70s and has when we did our building inspection has vinyl siding and uh, asphalt shingle roofing that would be at the end of life in about five years and so I wanted to blow her door test and figure out what was going on before we, we seal yeah, it get in a baseline. because we're going to take the, when it's at the end of life, we're going to take the siding off and then that's going to be my opportunity to do a really yeah. good air barrier from the outside, which is pretty much the only way to do it in an existing structure. Um, trying to go around all the walls and everything on the inside would just be crazy. Have you thought of doing something like, um, like aero barrier as a retrofit strategy? I mean, you'd have to like, it's, it's, you got to really do a lot of prep work to do, like, you got to move all your stuff out or other affect it. <laughs> but I mean, if the alternative is, if it's, if it's nothing, if it's that, or if it's, um, you know, removing siding on a historic house or just something you don't want to, you, you don't have the time or inclination or budget to do now. Anyway, have you, have you thought about it? I have done a couple of podcasts in the last uh, several weeks with Two Arrow Barrier. Um, first one was on the West Coast. And I was like, I don't know if anybody's doing it on the East Coast. And then, of course, somebody who listened to the podcast called me and was like, wait, I do it on the East Coast. Like, let me tell you, and I talked to him too. And so that kind of opened my eyes to the potential for doing that yeah. as a renovation. Um, we have an atmospherically drafting uh, boiler that I'd like to get rid of before I make a major impact on the amount totally of airflow in my building. That's actually sort of, that's why I started with my crawl yeah. space, not my attic, because I didn't want to, um, the mechanical system is, is awful. It's way oversized. It sounds like starting a jet engine anytime the air conditioning goes on. It's just, it, the ductwork is horrible. It's all like... I mean, like contortionists, uh, crazy. Um, so unfortunately, <laughs> because I want to replace the mechanical systems at the same time that I condition the condition, the attic, cause I don't want to have, I don't want my, I want, I want everything to be sealed combustion. I don't want to, um, air tighten and then have my, my craziness, but that means now I've got to save up that much more money to, to make change. That's exactly where I'm at because I'm like, I want to put solar on, but I don't want to put solar on a roof that I have to replace in the next three to five years anyway. And I have this chimney that comes up through the center of my South facing roof because I have an atmospherically drafted boiler, you know, in my basement and we have a walkout. So there's no reason why we couldn't do sealed combustion in a different area or even heat pumps because this house is, it's fairly yeah. small. So if we make some improvements to the attic and the lower level, we probably could heat with heat pumps. No problem. The very first thing that I did do when I moved in here was we were still making hot water off the boiler of an oil boiler. And I was like, oh no, that's got to change. <laughs> so the very first thing that we did, um, interestingly enough, this house, because it was built in the seventies was all electric at one time. And so there was an electrical wire hanging down next to the boiler where there clearly was an electric hot water tank before that they took out when they put in the boiler and made hot water with the boiler. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> So we put in a heat pump hot water tank and I was just like, this is, this is crazy. So this is basically a big discussion or a big exercise in 
allocation of limited resources and associated trade-offs. Absolutely. To come sort of full circle, I think that's what makes us, part of our job really is to do the best we can or know the, the most that we can from a technical perspective to be able to meet people where they're at with respect to these um, cons- like constraints and, and trade-offs. On that note, I'm going to stop the podcast here. I had such a great time talking to Christine Williamson that I'm going to turn this podcast into a two-part series. So tune in again next week to hear the rest of my discussion with Christine. In the meantime, if you have questions, send me an email, emily at motromarch.com. If you'd like to hear something specific from any of the guests that we've had on the podcast already, let me know and we'll try to get them back on to answer your burning questions. In the meantime, you can also catch me on the BS and Beer Show on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Go to thebsandbeershow.com to join us live or the BS and Beer Show on YouTube to check out past episodes. Until next week, have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you again on Friday. <laughs>